a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Elijah Holland is my next guest. We talk about energy. It's absolutely infectious. This man goes a million miles an hour. And believe it or not, he started baking when he was nine. He took his first apprenticeship at 13 years old, his first head chef position at 21. He spent four years in China. And when you're putting superstar chefs' names on your resume, it doesn't get any better than this. Rene Rizepi chose Elijah to help him identify all of our indigenous and forage ingredients when he did a pop-up of Noma in Sydney. This guy knows more about foraging and hunting than anybody that I know, and he is fascinating. And if you can keep up, and this is a warning, if you can keep up with the energy, you're going to need a cup of tea and a lie down at the end of this podcast. Have a listen. We met because I was walking the dogs on my track where I walk the dogs, I find pine mushrooms. So I often just take a little punnet of those. And there were these massive mushrooms. And I thought, are they slippery jacks? They can't be. And I posted that. They were the size of a, a dinner plate, right? Yeah. And I posted it and said, all those fun guys out there, all those mushroom people, jump on and tell me what these are. And a guy said, they're salmon gums. They're edible. Yep. But if you really want to know what to forage for, you need to contact this guy. And he copied you in on that post. And I looked you up and head chef of Lume, which is a very well-known restaurant in Melbourne, and Cutting Edge too, doing some different stuff. And I thought, you know what, your Insta page is fascinating. So we had the chance to go foraging together and what a wealth of information. So when I thought, who can I get in and do a podcast with? I think you can give us something different. Why the hell are you so into foraging? For me, um, I've always loved uh, nature and the outdoors, you know, since very young, I've, you know, Growing up with my family, we've always been, you know, in and around outdoors, nature and everything. And, you know, since I was a kid, parents would send us down to the park, go pick some mulberries or we'd be picking wild fennel somewhere. So it was always kind of integrated, I suppose, from a young age. And, you know, it kind of helps as well that, you know, fathers are botanists and parents have a degree in horticulture and permaculture. So that kind of always pushed on me a bit. But, you know, I started cooking when I was young, but, you know, spent a lot of time outdoors. So for me, as I started getting older and you know, in, in uh, I think the first restaurant I started foraging in was at, when I was at Jonah's, when I was, I think I was maybe 16 to 17 or something. But, so um, this is up on the northern beaches exactly. in Sydney. Yeah. And Jonah's must have, in all oh, the restaurants in the world, one of the best views oh, it sure on does. the planet, It's, it's it? incredible. Not, not to mention just the best views. I mean, on breaks and everything, I could go for a swim, I could go for a dive or a surf or something like that. So it's an incredible place to grow up and you don't really appreciate it until, you know, actually really growing up or leaving the area. But um, so I remember every day, you know, sometimes I'd go for, I'd go on a break or something and I'd be down at the beach and... I'd see some nasturtiums, I'd see bamboo shoots and other things, and I'd just look at it and be like, I'd go back to work and be like to my head chef, I'd be like, you know, I can just get this from the beach. It's for free. We don't have to pay. And he's like, oh, yeah, go for it. Get it, get it. So I started collecting all these random things and bringing it to work, all the different, you know, flowers and herbs, other things that we'd be using. And for me, it was just kind of like it was a little bit silly because I could go out somewhere and I'd find it and it'd be just going free and nobody's, you know, nobody even has a clue about it. So it was just really fascinating for me. So I just started trying to research and learn more and more and more things about it. And, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of trips out of the bush, a bit of hunting, things like this. So I'd go out and I'd see things and I'd be like, that's got to be something. And everywhere I went, if I saw, you know, some fruit or something on a tree or a flower, I'd be like, I wonder what that is. Can I eat it or can I use it? Or can I, you know, maybe do up a cool little different dish that nobody else can do because I'm using some interesting herb or flower or something. So for me, it was riveting. And then 
By the age I was at 21, I'd um, opened a place in the city in Potts Point as head chef. So that was, that was my first head chef gig. 21? And, 21 years old? Yeah, it was called the powder keg, yeah. <laughs> right. I was, I was, I was lucky. I had, I've had some really good mentors, Danny Russo, I'm sure you probably know, and um, a couple others, and they kind of pushed me into the position. And um, for me, I was being in the city, I had to keep a pretty tight budget and things like this. And so I was kind of always looking for, you know, what else can I do or something more interesting or to keep myself, you know, challenged. And for me, there was just all this abundance of wild food out there. So I was like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to put this on the plate. I'd, you know, I might serve it with, you know, it could be with barramundi or some fish, but I'd know that I could find all these other interesting ingredients that, you know, you couldn't get anywhere else. And so for me, it was just fascinating to see every different herb or flower or even a piece of bark. You know, what is it? What can I do with it? What can I cook with it? Is it delicious? You know, a lot of the times I I try something with it, and you know what? It's it's horrible. But <laughs> but then you you know you find a lot of things that are really incredibly interesting, or they're very different, and you're like, wow! Imagine the possibilities with this, or imagine what I could do with it. You know, whether it could go into a cocktail, or you know, into charcuterie, or you know, there's just I mean, I think there's too many things to do with it. So yeah. I've just kind of been fascinated, and I think the the funny thing is, ever since then. Anywhere you take me, I might be walking through the city or somewhere, you know, I'll be looking up at a tree or something. And next minute, if I see a bean or a pot or something, I'll probably be up the tree. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy, right? Because mm. I look at, I'm 53 years old. And I go, was I ever that energetic? You know, it's like the exuberance of youth, you know, and finding something new. And to be honest, for a chef, you work enough hours. I mean, surely. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was training, the chefs would go, I go to the market in the morning and I bring it to the <laughs> restaurant. And there are chefs that do that. Same as foraging. You know, I go Absolutely. foraging. And there are chefs that genuinely do it like you. So how do you have time to do all that? You know, how do you have time to forage? I mean, let alone, you know, I mean, if you go to the market in the morning and then you're putting in a solid day in the restaurant, that is, there's no hours left in the day, surely. I think it's really the the passion that the fact that I love this, you know, I love what I do. You know, I've been I've been cooking since I was about well, I started baking when I was about nine and then I started my apprenticeship when I was thirteen. So I love food and I love outdoors and nature. And luckily for me, which uh, you know, I think sometimes gets lost a little bit, it all goes hand in hand because without one or the other, there wouldn't be the other. So for me it's a kind of it's a joint package. So whether I'm out cooking or if I'm out foraging, I'm, I'm doing kind of the same thing because even with writing all the menus, whether it's writing menus at Lume or, you know, in different pop-ups I've done in Asia and other places, for me, it, it goes hand in hand, you know what I mean? I can't just only go to the markets and, and find and create what I'm looking for. For me, I get the inspiration and, and thought and everything from nature. That's what really kind of brings it up for me. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm excited to jump up and go out in the morning, even if, you know, sometimes I might be going out to the same spot to collect, whether it's, you know, could be um, some plantain or sorrel. If it's something, you know, it's exciting because it's like going to the farm, you know what I mean? You go out there and nobody planted it there. And the cool thing about it is some of these things, you, you'll try and plant it and you'll try and put it in a farm and you'll try and orchestrate it. You put the water in and it's nowhere near as good as Mother Nature's. And I look at that and I'm just like, that's wicked. And, you know, for me, it just, it gives me the energy to be able to go up and do that every day. And you hunt too. Not only are you hunting for things that you're, find on the ground or up a tree or whatever, but you're hunting too. Is that Does that go back to when you were a kid? Did your parents do it or is that something um, that... Funny about that, no, actually, the, the person who taught me most about that is actually Buen. Uh, as I was growing up, so he was um, he was pretty much the first chef that wrote me in and taught me a lot of things about food and cooking and lots of other things. And I, I learned to do a bit of diving and spearfishing with him and then hunting with him. But for, for me and also him at the same time, because we set up this wild food business, Nature's Pick, when I was 21, and, we, and you know, that we were delivering to lots of restaurants. And um, for me, it was more about 
understanding um, food and, and cooking because if I'm really into something, then I want to know everything about it. And for me, it's always been food and cooking. So I've always wanted to understand absolutely everything about what I'm dealing with. And if if I can go through the process of getting it from where it comes from, you know, and it is a hard process in hunting to, to kill something because it's not, you know what I mean? But I think it really opens up your ideas to appreciate it and then to not wasting a product and to maybe try and make use out of every single part of it and it really makes you appreciate you know what it is so even if if I'll go out hunting I only take exactly what I need because otherwise it's a waste and you know you, you, the whole emphasis is trying to work with the environment and that kind of makes you I think in a way a better a better chef or a better cook you know because I learn a lot more things about it you know so I remember the first time I went out and maybe shot a wild goose you know it was very hard for me you know but that's why I respected and used every part of the... Why was it hard, do you think? How old were you when you did this? That, uh, probably about 17, right? I'd say. And, I mean, because it's it's hard to, to take a, to take a life, you know what I mean, like that, because I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's not an easy thing to do because you have a living, breathing kind of thing in your lap, you know, and it's all part of the environment and you're taking that away, you know, and it's... Uh, but it's it's kind of it's still a bit of a riveting thing where it kind of can have a big effect if you're not doing it for a right reason or something like that. Yeah. So I think for me that really made me kind of learn to appreciate and try to use more things and and to have less waste and to see what else I could do with an ingredient. So whether even if it's using the innards, uh, you know, the guts and other things, or even the bones that we're not going to use, it might be putting that through a grinder and throwing it back into the garden where it's going to regenerate some food or something later, you know. But it's all all kind of that. So. You know, hunting is also, it's it, it reconnects you to nature and it makes it, you know, because and I've been out for days when I've been out for a good 14, 15-hour day and you come back with nothing and I, I might come back with a bit of, you know, some plants or something else instead, you know. So that's when I go out like bow hunting or something. So I don't know, it all creates like this experience that just drives my energy into just t- trying to find and, and use and do different things, you know what I mean? I don't know how to explain it sometimes. No, but, but it's, um, it's a, an interesting thing. A couple of years back, there was a – because this is difficult even for people to listen. It's like warning we're going to talk about animals dying in this program because people are so detached from what they eat. Yeah, that's that's, so when, that's a really good way of describing it. Even when you go to the supermarket, everything's wrapped under plastic and now more than ever there's less variety, I think, generally that's, than there's yeah, ever been. So people true. are buying skinless chicken breast, they're buying skinless bonus chicken thighs, they're buying steak, and they're not even connecting it with the animal that it was. In fact, Absolutely. they don't want to think about it because yeah. it's not very nice. Simple yeah, as that. Yeah, yeah, and I remember true. a couple of years ago, there was a uh, a guy in Canada, I think Toronto, and he was a hunter and his restaurant, ah, yes. remember? Antler, I think. Antler, yeah. exactly right. And he had, it nearly shut him down. He had protesters outside his yep. business. Yeah, yeah. Even though there were two butcher shops literally across the street, but they were outside his restaurant with banners, you know, shouting from the treetops that it was cruel and it was you know, disgraceful and he should be closed down. And he did this, whether it was a terrible thing or not, but it certainly brought attention to it. He took a deer leg, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and he broke it down. In and the he broke it down in, yeah, in the yeah. front window in front of all these animal rights people, which is, I mean, it's really, it's poking the bear, isn't it? But yeah, he was saying, yeah. hang on a minute, I hunt. We only use what we need. We use everything, nose to tail. That's true, yeah. And we represent really, I suppose, the best way to eat if you're a omnivore like we are, which means we have everything. Yeah, rather than going to the butcher across the street, yeah. which got no attention, that's, that's and true. buying your skinless, you know, boneless chicken thighs. Absolutely, and I think it's about really, it's it's really about where your food comes from. You know what I mean? And you know, maybe if you get it from, you know, the wild. I'm not saying that not everybody can go out and you know get these things from the wild, but yeah, it's really understanding where your food comes from. Even even if it's just the bacon on the shelf, you know, Woolies and Coles or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
it's not for everyone and it doesn't have to be or need to be. But, you know, just I think for me, it's really provided the inspiration to be able to say that I really, you know, I mean, I've been cooking, you know, since I was 13 about essentially and I've never thought and I can't ever think of, of doing anything else because for me it's an everyday thing, you know what I mean? So on my weekends I'll be doing the exact same thing as I'm probably doing during the week at work, but I love it. Yeah. I was going to ask you why you became a chef at 13 years old. I mean, I talked to a lot of chefs that are 15 years old, but 13 is the next step. You're still a kid. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's true. I mean, look, I, I always love food. Well, what's funnier than that is when I was really young, when I think I was nine, 10 years old, I started just for fun. I started baking with my, with my big brother. I remember that was at Balmain Bakehouse up in um, New South Wales, really long time ago. And I was doing, you know, these shifts and I eventually went from there. I was working at Baker's Delight as a baker that was. And um, I worked with my brother and bakers were pretty kind of, they were, they were hard asses, I'm not going to lie. And, um, they're, a, they're a special bunch, yeah, Elijah. Yeah, and then getting up at 12, <laughs> 1, 2 in the mornings, you know, for me. And I was still at school, but I was young but, and I wanted hang to on, be- slow you down for a second. Why baking? Why did that capture your imagination? Do you remember at that age? Well, I mean- it was my big brother, to be honest. My big brother pulled me into it and was because I was I was that age and I said, you know, I want to make a bit of my own money, you know, do some things or whatever. And um, and I always loved food. I mean, ever since I was really young, I'd be sitting on the washing machine with mum, I mean, churning butter. I came from a household where everything was made from scratch, you know, with uh, either my uh, mum or with my grandparents. So we uh, used to have a farm and we'd make our own cream and, and, and butter and this? things. Where was this farm? In uh, Londonderry, out right. in Windsor. So right out... It's kind of underneath the Blue Mountains yeah. in, up in the uh, up in Sydney, the uh, Greater Blue Mountains area. So, yeah. and um, you know, we, we used to grow things and everything, and um, we didn't live on that farm, but it was parents uh, had that, and we'd go out there, we'd get fresh milk and these things. So, I always just had this connection with food, and especially with you know my mama, I learned a lot from her. So I just and I would hang around food, and I loved to eat food the most. You know, I was very energetic, but I just loved to eat food more than anything. So because um, I was saying normal. I'm not saying normal is a a terrible thing to say, but other nine-year-old kids are really, they're climbing trees and tearing around on their bike in the country. Yeah, well, I suppose I was was doing the exact same thing. I was very sporty, but at the same time, I'd be eating absolutely everything and anything in sight. Yeah, and churning butter with your mum. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) And what other things did you, I'm trying to paint a picture here, but what other things would you cook and bake with her? I mean, is there something you go, I still remember that, I still cook. Well, I mean, I remember, and I remember one thing that, my mum still boasts, and that, and it's true that I can still never make it better than her. Or my brother, who was a baker as well, his scones. You know, my mum can and still does make the best scones in the world. And I remember because what we used to do a really long time ago, we used to have little scone stores outside of our house every day. And mum would make a couple hundred kilo bags of flour every couple of days, and we'd sell them. We we used to live at Strathfield area, and we'd sold enough scones over about, I think it was about eight months, combined with that and with dad, and we ended up having a holiday. We went to America, Canada, Mexico, and Bahamas, but mum was in this little commercial oven at home, uh, sorry, in little kitchen oven at home, and she'd just be pumping out so many different types of scones that makes you, you know, like from cheese and bacon to, you know, pumpkin and rosemary to, you know, date scones and everything, and, you know, so that was, I used to help mum out making them a lot, but, you know, just all the other little things, you know, like... um a lot of preserving and fermenting. Mum had Fowler's Vacola and everything would be preserved and bottled in the back or yeah. dehydrators. So, And people are disconnected from that now. The only reason I'm stopping yeah. you, and you're on a roll, yeah. but those little Fowler's jars, yeah. people are like, what are they? They're oh, great. You, eh? can, you can preserve stuff in them. Absolutely, yeah. But it's not the kind of thing, it's kind of, there's a little trendy thing that's coming back into yeah, fashion. That, that's right, But yeah. it's certainly not 
as it used to be, I don't think, where people make their own jam and they make their own preserves. Yeah. Make their own pickles and things. And well, it's because, I mean, I remember we'd sometimes on the farm or we'd, you know, collect mulberries or something else somewhere else or maybe some little wild plums. And then, you know, we'd have a, a lot of them. You know, I come from a big family. I've got two two brothers and I've got two sisters. So, and you know, so mum would, you know, preserve or dry. And I always remember ch- chewing on dried tomatoes or dried bananas as a kid and things like this. But this is all stuff that my mum would make. It's not, you know what I mean? So... And a lot of that was coming either from direct from our garden or would go places and pick it. You know, one thing that actually I remember, one really good memory that um, we always used to go kind of to the outback areas near uh, Broken Hill and um, right in the outback. And there was this, this big, big stretch and it was all covered with olive trees. And we used to go up there, we'd bring the ladder and we'd collect buckets and buckets and buckets of olives. And we never, ever bought an olive, ever. Mum would always make them. I remember us sitting in the kitchen and slit, uh, putting a little slit in an olive then putting it in water and then rinsing it every couple of days, rinsing it and then eventually brining it. And I remember learning from mum, and this is in, in the future doing uh, olives in my restaurants, you know, when you're brining them and when you're washing them, you always keep some of the olive leaves because it has this kind of antibacterial in it and it keeps and stops mold and other bad things from coming into it. Then not only that, another thing that we always always had in the house, I remember even from when we've moved houses, was coffee trees. And still to this day in my parents' place under the northern beaches, Mum probably has over 150 or more coffee trees. And I remember sitting there, popping them out of the little kind of coffee berry, and then we'd soak them in water, and then, then we let them dry, and then mum would have, you know, the slave labour in the kitchen, all the kids <laughs> rubbing the coffee, kind of the outside skins off, and then she'd roast them and, yeah, have her own coffee. So it was kind of, it was always there. See, I never knew you could grow coffee trees on the northern beaches. Oh, absolutely. I didn't think it would be warm enough because our coffee industries up north, right? It's up yeah, in Queensland, yeah, yeah. essentially, Absolutely. or northern New South Wales. It just goes to show, doesn't it? Do you remember any funny or terrible conversations around? Because that's hours of free labour. Yeah, I know, yeah, <laughs> that's, that, that's true. And I think, I suppose, back then sometimes as well, that's what we used to kind of think of, you know, like it was a little bit of slave labour, and, you know, especially now. But, you know, now I realise it's really helped kind of integrate into me this sense of, you know, making everything from scratch because not only that and you know another one of the uh, a fond memories i remember that we'd always have a you know place and it would always have like a fireplace and i remember mum would always she'd be making her own yogurt and it would be wrapped up in dunas near in front of the fire you know the next morning we'd come down we'd unwrap the dunas and then we got fresh yogurt you know so i mean they were such amazing memories but they've really kind of helped push me to with the cooking and food that i've gone and i've kind of worked in so many different places and everything and then sometimes i just feel that some of the places you know you kind of you get it gets taken away, you know, you order things in, you order things in, but it takes you away from understanding, you know, the process of making some of these things, you know, and for me, that's fascinating. I mean, some of them, you have to be really patient because, you know, things like, for instance, charcuterie and other stuff like that, it takes a long time to make, you know what I mean? And sometimes I have been known to, to be a little bit impatient, but sometimes that, that just doesn't work. So you have to kind of slow down a step and kind of be patient and you just can't wait because there's some things you just can't rush. Yeah. And I've, I've got two little Gruyere cheeses in my uh, wine fridge. Because I make a bit of cheese here and they make yogurt ah, every awesome. week. And they've got to be 12 months old and they are now eight months old. Oh, I bet, and I bet they, that must be hard to wait. It's hard because <laughs> I reckon they're good. I'm looking at them and yeah. I, occasionally I still have to give them a little yeah. wash down with brine because they take on this little kind of, yep, you know, them. velvety texture, right, when they've got this little crumb on the top. And I'll wash them down if I think it's getting on top of them and I smell them I go, I want to eat one. I want to eat one. And the trouble is oh, I, I should really I should really be backing them up because as a proper cheesemaker, you'd already now yeah, have yeah, the yeah. ones that are eight months, the ones that are five months, the ones that are three months. But I've just it's just a process for me to understand and do it. It's a thrill. 
I want instant gratification. That's why I make yoga, I make ricotta, I make absolutely. I'll make brie before I make anything else because it's quick. And and you know what the thing is probably though when you get to that twelve month mark you're gonna taste it and you're gonna be like oh my goodness I should have made more. <laughs> You're going to be like, this is so bloody good. And your wife will be saying the same thing as well. And then you'll have to get some on the go. It'll take some time. <laughs> so let's get to that 13-year-old. You've got two parents that are botanists and uh, so yeah, well, horticulturalists. Um, yeah, they, they do quite a few things to be How honest, come so. you didn't end up doing that? How come didn't you, you didn't end up, I don't know, finishing school, going to uni? It's funny. That was actually, they, they, they were the hobbies for my, you know, my mum's an artist. Um, so she's a potter, and an artist by trade and a sculptor. Um, and dad's, uh, he's actually a teacher, but he's got a um, business um, landscaping and things, but he's, he teaches at uni. He's got a PhD in science and chemistry, physics, and a couple other things. Um, but yeah, for me, I was, I don't know. I think I you got a sister too that you, yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. I've got, I got a little, my little sister. Who, and what she's she an, uh, she's studying mycology and she's a nutritionist and a naturopath. Right. And then my big brother's an engineer. My little sister is, is studying to be a movie film producer. And then my biggest brother, who's, he's in America now, who's the baker. He's actually a nurse now. Okay. But um yeah, for, and then you got Chef Elijah. Yeah, and then that's me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so what happened at that point? Why why become a chef at such a young age and not stay at school? Were you a naughty boy? I'm not going to lie. Devil control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't it wasn't, you know, the kind of the, you know, the best kid on the the block in the classroom. And I was yeah, I was a bit wild. I was kind of always searching for something else a little bit more, you know, like I was easily bored, easily distracted. And, you know, if things weren't challenging enough for me, I'd, I'd get bored and kind of roll over and want to do the next thing. So for me, I was always kind of, you know, pushing and searching for the next thing. And well, it was very, very competitive, you know. So, you know, when I, I remember when I first jumped in the kitchen uh, after baking, first, actually, I was just washing some dishes and then I was helping out, as, you know, with a bit of prep. But, you know, I would always notice things and I would watch everything, you know. So I'd watch and if ever I needed to jump in and help somebody out, I knew everything to do. I, I knew exactly what to do and I'd and do it. And, and also, I, I think one thing that I had a bit of a problem with, sometimes I'd always try to suggest another idea or do something else or oh, try and, you are a pain you know, in the ass, basically, so, yeah. <laughs> in kitchen terms. Oh, yeah. Who's the kid? Absolutely. That was me. So, because I'd always try and suggest something else or, you know, maybe cutting it a different way or, you know. So, but in saying that, I remember, I remember going on that section first and it was cold larder, you know. There was not too many dishes. But I remember I would just get everything done a lot faster and I'd always try and push to show that, you know, I could do it faster or I could, you know, have everything done and I'd be ready to try and do something else or try to learn something else or wait for somebody to teach me something else. And I was always pushing and, you know, who was buoyant at the time, trying to go over and learn how to cook a steak or get on the grill, do something like that. And I'd always get knocked back and knocked back, but I'd always just keep pushing and keep pushing and show, you know, look, I can do this fast. I can do it better than this person. Let me do something else, you know, so... And then just working with the food, the fact that I always got to eat everything every now and then, it was, I mean, it was so much fun for me. So, yeah. So it was, I, a, it was a simple equation. And I'm saying it's a simple equation is because keen, keeping you on the go, keeping your mind occupied, and you get a great reward at the end of it, which means you can eat, right? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Your parents supportive of it the whole way? Like when you said, no, I want to be a chef, I mean, I want to get a job I think in the kitchen. maybe I'm sure my dad had a little bit different ideas from, you know, where he would have, you know, liked me to do and so on. and. Look, mum was very supportive of whatever I wanted to do, and, and so was dad, but I think, you know, I'm sure dad had some other different ideas for me. But, you know, for me, I was kind of like very against that, especially if somebody was trying to put an idea into me or say, oh, maybe you should do this. I, I wanted to be myself and kind of like do my own thing, you know, and or do what I was interested in. So I kind of really kind of tried to push myself and show that, you know, well, I want to do this and I want to be good at this. And yeah. um, that's why I think everywhere, uh, you know, I've been and I've been in – quite a few places and always mainly as the youngest person, but I've always been pushing to try and be at the top if I can, so to speak, or trying to, to do as much, you know, to try and show that I can do just as 
good as, as everybody else, or if not better, you know. And, you know, and I'd be at a place, the first place was, I was at for about a year and a half, and then I really felt like I was kind of getting bored and I couldn't learn anything else or do anything else. And then so I'd jump onto the next place. And then, you know, that's when I went to um, Baron Joey House, actually, working for Darren Simpson at the time. Yep. I ended up working with him there for a while, and then I moved from uh, Baron Joey House to Darren Simpson, opened up a place called La Scala in the city. And I went there, work, and so I worked for Darren Simpson for about two and a bit years. And I remember I'd know every single new specialty do or everything. And then, you know, after working for Darren for about two or three years, that's when I went to Aria, because I always wanted to go to this next place and, and learn or do something different. I, I feel I'd I try and learn everything and soak everything up from yeah. a place. And, and then you're scaling up. And were they were they careful choices? So when was it deliberate to go to Aria? Did you have a number of places on your list that you went? You know what? I'm gonna. Do a stage at each one and then well, I'm going to pick the, the one that's best that, for my that's career? A, that's the interesting thing. And um, before actually coming back to Australia, you know, since I've re- recently come back, I've never actually applied for a job anywhere. I've never actually put my resume in. I've been lucky. I've had a really a, lo- a lot of good uh, friends or people who have believed me and supported and kind of pushed me. And everything's kind of just been from me just kind of branching out or just going and meeting someone or being like, oh, you know, I want to come work here or, or you know, can I do a shift here or something, you know, and and then just – I'd always go in and remember that I'd whatever I do, I just work so hard, get everything done. I'd be the fastest and get everything, you know, to make sure that I don't have any room for error. And then, you know, so that's why I always wanted to jump from here to the next place to learn more and do so more. So how did Aria go? So this is Ari- Matt, Mar- Matt Moran. Yeah, that was Matt Moran, and that was back in the day when uh, Ben Turner was the head chef right. and worked with with him. And um, Aria was one of the hardest kitchens I've ever worked in in my life, and uh, it was a it was a pretty full on kitchen. You know, it was like you you get this done, you don't make a you know make a sound or word, you you just Get it done. Don't you leave any room for error, you know? Because he's uh, been incredibly successful. I mean, Aria would be one of the longest-running successful restaurants at that level in Australia now. I mean, it taught me so many of the fundamentals, really, really strengthened and kind of, you know, made me more of a, you know, like a hardened kind of chef, you know what I mean? Because it it worked Is that a good thing? I think so. You know, from, I mean, look, I definitely say, and I'm, I'm sure everybody, you know, like, Things have changed in kitchens all over the world, you know what I mean? And, you know, like with how, you know, people might be treated or, you know, yelling and things like this. Yeah. But, you know, like I think um, it was exactly what I needed. It was great. And, it, you know, really it pushed me, you know what I mean? And that's what I needed. I, I really wanted to, to be pushed and have the drive to really kind of, you know, get into something and work hard. What and, was it? Did it slow you down a bit? Did it focus you in on techniques or on dishes? Yeah, yeah, that- it did. It did actually because the whole time I was at Aria, I was only on sauce section. So I didn't move to any other sections. I just stayed on, which was, you know, honestly, it was one of the hardest sections in the kitchen because I worked on sauce section right next to the sous chefs or head chefs sometimes when Ben Turner would cook. I don't know how it happened, but I was kind of like, you know, I remember when I was going there, I said that I wanted to work in the hardest kitchen. I did a couple of, uh, you know, Areas. I'm not saying there were other sections were easy because they weren't. Everything was hard. But you know, for me, I really wanted to work on and you know on this this hardest place where it would really challenge me the most. And it was, and it was it was such a really good um, you know that time. I think it was about a year and a half to nearly two years. The whole time I spent there, and that was one of the most solid like upbringings and foundations for me and my cooking career because I learned so much there. I mean, that place really made me keep so many habits that I still have to that to this day. You know, whether it might be with Masking tape and cutting labels exactly perfect. They have to be cut. Tight cling and film. And they cannot exactly tight cling film and you know, numerous other <laughs> Only things. Chef, that, this is chef speak, yeah. Dave. It's and, people and listening the, going, why? And Who these cares? are things that if you see somebody else do it a different way, you're just like, no, you can't. That's not okay. You can't, yeah. that can't do that. It just looks messy. Or but it's, it's just process not and it's, a, it's yeah, attention. That, to that's detail. the thing, and I think it really taught me that to really kind of like it pulled me back and said, you know, stop trying to run around everywhere, do everything to try and 
knuckle down and, and perfect this and get this done properly. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. very positive guy, you're travelling at a million miles an hour, but you talked about Darren Simpson there. I mean, you know, very sadly, Darren's not with us anymore and it really bought, I think, in Australia in the Australian hospitality community, it just created a little moment along with a couple of other people that we went, hang on a minute, this is not right. You know, people's mental health, um, you know, the hours are long, they're unsociable, and that never meant anything before. Alcohol has always been a problem. Drugs have been a problem. And when we lost Darren, everybody, I think it was a bit of a shock. It, it, it sure was, and especially, you know, for me, because I worked for Darren altogether, you know, in two different venues for about three years. So, yeah. I mean, all the fundamentals and basic understanding of me and my life as a chef, you know, like, I mean, you know, doing things and actually being given freedom to get things done, that was all through, you know, Darren, the first time I ever went to, like, you know, as an assistant to help Darren to a, a cooking class or, you know, and I think Darren kind of, he really tucked me on, you know, his wing and, you know, I was kind of, he was trying to push me as his next kind of, you know, Jamie Oliver or something like this, you know. But, mm. like, I learned a lot from him. And that, that was a very hard thing, I think, for me to see and everything happened. How did, how did, you, and, fe- how did you feel about that on the moment you found out that he passed away? It, it was, you know what, it, it was really hard. And especially, I mean, because at, at the time, maybe two or three weeks earlier when I was in, in China running some restaurants over there, I'd, I'd actually had a, a message. Because when me and Darren actually kind of, uh, well, when I left working for Darren, it wasn't actually really on good terms because Darren was kind of a little bit, upset that you know, I was going to Aria to work for someone else and, you know, he thought I'd be working yeah. for him kind of. He'd actually, it was the first time in maybe like, uh, I'd say maybe like five five years or, or more, he'd actually messaged me and he said he was really, really proud of me and everything I was doing and that was when I was in China, you know, and that was you know, that was a really big thing for me. So then when I saw it, it wasn't long after when I saw what happened, that was, uh, you know, it's, it's something that you almost don't believe from one side, but, uh, you know, it really made me understand and realise Darren was a, you know, like a very uh, jovial, I think this is the word, or very, you know, energetic and he was a great person, full of energy and character, you know, and... um, Has it it changed your perspective? What do you think? Has it changed how you think about the industry or about where you're going? I I think it has, you know, because for me, I was, I actually, I learned a lot from Darren, but also I I learned a lot of great things and I think I also possibly learned a couple of maybe, you know, other traits, you know, where you can be really kind of, you know, like, I don't want to say a dick, but you can be a little bit kind of full on to people and th- things like this. And there was a lot of everything there that I respected Darren for and that he really taught and showed me so much. But there was sometimes a lot of tension, you know what I mean? Because I sometimes, you know, when you get treated a certain way, you don't feel like it's right, especially if you're working really hard and things, you know what I mean? So I think it, honestly, after that, it kind of changed a little bit more of my uh, attitude and especially how I deal with uh, uh, people and situations in kitchens and so on. And especially like at that time when I'd just come to China and I was doing things over there, you know? Mm. So, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because in the industry, you're taught to be a chef, but you're not taught to manage people. You're not taught to be a manager yeah. and then next step, be a businessman. That's why it's such a, a difficult industry, I think. And the, the funny thing with Darren Simpson, from my perspective, was that I remember him being one of the first chefs on television to get a gig that I remember, because I came here in, I think, 91, and thinking, wow, that guy's hit the big time. Like, he's got it covered. You know, he's 
running restaurants. He's successful. He's got a gig on TV and he was really good on TV. Like he could communicate well. And then years later, it just all kind of started to fall apart. It's interesting. And it's a, it's a lesson for all of us, I think, to pay attention, not just to ourselves. Absolutely. But well, I, I, and I think, I think one of the things actually, especially about that, what you're saying, and I think the most, most important thing is to actually to kind of speak out about things sometimes. Because I know Darren... And it was something that I also, you know, different, you know, a lot of pe- people can kind of keep things to themselves and, you know, you don't want to talk to anyone, you know, you're doing things, you want to do things a hundred miles an hour, you want to do everything and, uh, you know, but you don't sometimes think about that time for yourself or, or that it is good to speak to somebody or something else. You keep everything bottled up yeah. inside. Uh, you know, I, I think that's what kind of, you know, happened, you know, I think unfortunately Darren was in a little bit of a, you know, dark yeah. place, which is really sad. And I think if there can be anyone positive thing out of that is to get anybody to actually to talk to somebody if there ever is a problem with anything, whatever yeah. it might, might be. That's, just speak up. Yeah, because there's, there's, there's nothing wrong to, to speak up about Absolutely. it, you know what I mean? Talked about China, and uh, you told me you were there for four years when we were out picking mushrooms. I went, gee, yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's a place you learn about people, is it not? Not just, I mean, incredible experience about food, but tell us about that. How it, difficult is it? It sure is. And you're, you're a young man. You are a young man. Yeah. I'm sure they were looking at you going, nah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No. You, you, you have no idea because I mean, most <laughs> look chef, chefs in China and especially any respected chefs, they're old. I yeah. mean, they're really old. Uh, you know, so that for me, I can definitely say was the most challenging thing that I've ever done in my life, and and, and that's in any kitchen where I've worked. Nothing. I mean, nothing kind of prepared me and had me ready for this. You know what I mean? Because you know, I walked in there and you know, I speak English. That's it. You know, I've never had to or needed to. You know, a couple of French words here and there and some Italian words from working in kitchens, but all, you know, so first, I mean, I had to earn respect, but not to mention that. I mean, in the restaurant there, there was probably about 50 to nearly 60 people, like, because this was a really big venue, you know? So, I mean, it all happened. It's actually quite funny. So the owner of the restaurant, one of the owners, and and the reason why I went over there, I was introduced to Errors, uh, Mr. Harry, who's the owner of Lume, by Danny Russo. So he introduced me to him and they said, oh, you know, there's this uh, gig they, they're going to do in China. You know, you might be interested. And I said, well, you know, I like to challenge myself. So it sounds very interesting. And they're like, you know, it's just, look, it's a small city of 7 million people. And, you know, so I was like, all right, cool. And I was like, well, 7 million, it's, it's not very small. But for that, <laughs> over there, that's a very small city. It I tell is, you what. Yeah. And see, for me, I thought, ah, this is going to be this big, ginormous city, 7 million people. It's huge. But actually where I was, it was in South China in an area called Foshan. And it's actually, it's a very, it's a rural city, you know. They have this tiny little minuscule airport, which is actually nearly the size of our airport here. This place, I went over there and, you know, I couldn't speak a word of Chinese. I didn't know anything about the area or anything. And I just went in, you know, 100 miles an hour. I was like, well, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And the first thing I went in when I uh, got there was started building gardens over three levels of the restaurant that were were over there and putting gardens in. Because, you know, for me, I was still in this kind of stage where, you know, I mean, I don't buy any, you know, microgreens or herbs or other things and, you know, I rely on foraging. So as soon as I got over to China, I was foraging, going all throughout the jungles. And that was really interesting because, you know, you're going in bamboo jungles and forests and there's stuff over there. Was that someone escorting you or you just... No, no. You're I was just, just this Australian guy yeah. foraging around in some backwater outside of a city of million, yeah, seven million people. Absolutely. So, I mean, what I did was it was really interesting because I was doing a lot of, and before that I'd been doing quite a few pop-ups, um, you know, all over Asia and a lot of stuff. So, and I've been really researching everything about, you know, botany essentially, you know, like plant species, you know, where you'll find what, you know, and what countries. And then, so before then I'd been doing a lot of research, everything over Asia and stuff, but it's surprising, you know, I went over there and I found a lot of species that are actually native to Australia or maybe to Scandinavia, you know, so. Why is that? 
Well, you know, I mean, it's the world these days. Things get taken everywhere. Yeah. It could be from wildlife, you know, and or it could also be from, you know, like just people bringing it over yeah. to growth. Hundreds of years of exactly. Botany, you know? And I mean, not only that, it's also why in some countries there's so many, you know, weeds because people accidentally bring it. But um, China was, oh, it was in- incredible. So I went over there, started foraging, gardening, setting things up. Then the next thing I went and did over there is, I mean, we started going to, I started trying to learn about all the food, the food culture, the areas, what I could get, the seasons. And I mean, going to the markets and things over there, it was, you know, absolutely incredible. I wish I could, you know, just show you some of these photos. I mean, which I still have, so maybe I'll well, show well, you sometime. But dis- I mean, slow down a second, describe it because it's, um, if you're going to go to a country that eats everything, yeah, you know, like if we, we're doing yeah. the opposite of what we're doing here in Australia, yeah. which is eat chicken breasts under plastic, uh, China would be the place to go. Absolutely, and actually, I think and fairly topical. At not the moment, not I only suppose. that, I remember one of the first places that I got taken to over there by the the Chinese uh, owners and investors of the restaurant was I remember being taken to one of these restaurants. So one of the – this is actually a really good lesson that I've learned. One thing over there that they don't do is waste. They, every, everything is, you know, used. And I think when I went over there, it was the part in Australia, you know, where if you're going to serve fish or chicken and everything, there can't be any bones into it. It has to be only a fillet, things like this. And I, re- I remember going over there and then you go to this area and section of the restaurant and there's just – there's fish tanks. Then there's, you know, there's an area over there, there's frogs, there's snakes, there's turtles and everything. And then – you know, I got told to go choose what I want to have for dinner, uh, sorry, for lunch. And I was like, this is incredible, you know, this is amazing. So I remember one of the things we chose was some big kind of cod, you know, it was a really, really big fish. And then, so, and this was like a really, you know, just, just a local restaurant, you know. So they took it back and then the owners, investors, the Chinese uh, guys, they said, oh, look, they're going to cook this fish probably like you know, 15, 20 different ways. So what we started having is we had course after course after course. With it. it was probably a good maybe like six, seven kilo fish just broken down into, into so many incredible different dishes with the whole entire fish. And then the final last two dishes was kind of like a, a fish soup congee made with all the bones. And then the rest of the bones that have even a tiny little leftover bit of meat on it, whatever it is, is it just fried in almost like a little bit of a flour mix, salt and pepper style. But there was every single thing of the whole entire fish was eaten, you know. And for me, that was just fascinating. Was um, there one course out of that that you still – remember that you could describe that was my first time i ever ate snake over there actually yeah. so china's so interesting because the whole country is is so you know different the flavors the taste the sensation in one part of china they love spicy the other side of china or area they cannot stand spicy you put anything spicy in it boom they won't even touch it but the snake that cantonese I had, was, and Sichuan. if you kind of put it in oh, exactly. one's kind of pretty bland cantonese will look at it and go you know it's pretty bland yeah Sichuan and then, is just like Sichuan and then chewy, and then chewy. beijing beijing yeah. like salty like gamey meaty and right. you know and it, it's just it's so diverse it's crazy but i mean you know i remember this snake dish was really really chewy and i was going eating it going Oh, it's you know, it's not too far away from an eel. And I was like, you know, maybe they should cook it a bit more, and then it'll be nicer. And I said, no, 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 it has to be chewy like that. It needs to be like that. And I was like, all right, because that's the no thing. Problems, we, no problems. we in this country, we love things like you know, creamy and crunchy. Yeah. And in China, they like things that are chewy. You got to chew on it, yeah, right? Absolutely. Knuckly and chewy and yeah. elastic yeah. and squeaky and slimy. Yeah. Because they're the things in our Western culture, right, or the way we eat, if you're Italian or you're French cook or whatever, they're the kind of worst textures you can imagine. You yeah. find something slimy or squeaky. Absolutely. And I think over there really, really opened up my horizons and possibilities to, to try and do so many different things yeah. and cooking with so many different things. You know, I could go to the markets. I could get like eight different types of eggs. I could get goose eggs. I could get pheasant eggs, dove eggs. You know, I can get partridge eggs, I can get guinea fowl eggs, I can get gull eggs if I get it in a good season. I mean, 
and not to mention I could get emu eggs as well if I want and ostrich eggs. They're actually the largest producers of emu and ostrich eggs in the world, which is you know, crazy, but um, you know, you go to the markets. These there. are called Elijah's take-home facts. Yeah, if you can remember them, <laughs> I love that. It's good. Okay, hang on, I'm gonna slow you down a sec. Give me an example of young Aussie boy in kitchen dealing with a brigade of sixty, I presume, older guys. So okay, so so yeah, this is the interesting you... thing. It's it's up and down because in China, you don't an occupation as a chef. It's like one of the last things you do. That means about ninety percent of the people who are doing it have never been to cooking school in their life. They just need a job. You know what I mean? So. I had some older age people in the in the kitchen and then I had some really young people. The interesting thing was, you know, it was just kind of respect of me showing different things of, you know, what can be done with so many different things in different ways of things, you know what I mean? But before you got there, but, give me an example. So I've heard lots of stories out of China. I'm just trying to get one out of you because I know there's some good ones. I probably have too many, but I mean, look, because <laughs> for me, you know, when I, when I got over there first, it was really for me what I was showing to them and, you know, that – I was going to do everything and make everything from scratch myself. So the first thing is I started making vinegars, you know. So in this place, all the vinegars or anything we used was made in-house. You know, I made strawberry vinegar. I remember we made beer vinegar, white wine vinegar, champagne uh, champagne vinegar. We made, you know, watermelon, absolutely everything. And I was showing how all these things – and luckily I had a lot of good support. So, you know, with Mr. Harry – the owner of um, uh, Lume. So, you know, I was really lucky. The, the kitchen, they let me build and design and set up the kitchen over there with basically every single piece of equipment, anything I wanted. You know, I wanted a packer jet here. I wanted two Thermomix, this. And I was really lucky, you know, that, and that doesn't happen. It never happened to me before. So I was just like a kid in a candy shop. I was like, look, I need this, this, this. I need liquid nitrogen on tap all the time, but I'm going to do this with it. And I was, you know, showing them what I could do with it and what I would do with it. You know what I mean? You know the the thing is when I when I when I went over there I remember when I when I ordered and got in butter and so on for the first time you know things over there you know I remember some of the chefs that you know and I so I had one translator that would follow me absolutely everywhere his name was Victor I remember this little kid and he was a very kind of scared and you know didn't like to raise his voice or anything like this but so I remember when butter came in for the first time and they had butter some of the chefs were just looking they're like you know they translated oh what is this you know and then they, some of them try to eat it and they're like oh no no this is they thought it was cheese and like. This is really oily. You, you can't eat this. This is very fatty. And I was like, no, no, this is just pure butter. You know what I mean? Another thing, I remember when we all got, you know, some gorgonzola dolce that came in, you know, because it was going to go on some little cheese bait to go in the in the um, cocktail bar menu. And all I've got thrown in the bin. And it was all sitting, and I was like, why is it in the bin? And the chefs are like, I, it got translated through, uh, you know, my translator. And they said, oh, this is all moldy. This is horrible. You, you can't eat this. You're going to kill someone. This this is, no. You, and they're like, no, 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 no. You, you cannot serve this. Chinese will not eat this. And that this is one place where I really, really had to I had to change my whole style of cooking because things that I thought were okay and that I wanted to I'd cook something and I'd and I'd be like, This is a great dish. And then I'd have either the staff or the owners investors say, This is horrible, this is too sour, this chicken is too juicy, or this bread is sour and crusty, that's not okay. No, 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 you can't do it like this. You have to change oh, that was really tr- tricky it, for me. Isn't that strange how different cultures have different perceptions of what they think is normal and good to eat and not. Yeah. And that idea of our idea of Chinese food needing everything, you know, whether it's chicken's feet or swim bladder or whatever it is, is kind of crazy and not very nice and squeaky food. Who wants to eat squeaky, chewy food? And they're looking at something like soft and luscious and mouldy like yeah. Gorgon's Soda and going, that's disgusting. <laughs> it's a really interesting yeah. cultural kind of It, it wall, is. And it, it really baffled me a lot of the time. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes I had this thing and I was kind of like, a little bit, um, what's the word? A little bit kind of. Uh, kind You're of, upset about it. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, exactly. Because because sometimes I was doing learning. things, you know, and they're like, I'd make a salad dressing. No, no, that's sour. It can't, but there's vinegar and lemon juice in it. No, 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 you can't do that I for you. That, nobody ordered. It. It to, you know, must be sweeter. 
you know, the bread. So I had to change it, you know, and I, so I made a lot of um, like- um, Soft milk breads, I Yeah, suppose. well, I made a lot of challah. So, and right. so I challenged, we were making like maybe like 15 different types of challah or braided and other things like this because they were softer, but that would be it. And then sourdough, I might sell one every week, you know what I mean? So I'd have to change, you know. So, but that, that was really interesting because it made me kind of really change the whole structure of the food that I'm going to cook to make it readily available to the, you know, the local- Palette. It's Palette, cooking yeah. for the customer, isn't it? So back to Australia, and I'm not sure if the timing is right here, but you were the official forager for Rene Rezepi's pop-up, Noma in Sydney. Yeah. How, how the hell did that come about? Well, that, I mean, that was... Who put you in touch with who? Because, I mean, if we're talking yeah. about Rene Rezepi, I mean, Noma set the standard, didn't it? Certainly in Yeah, Europe, absolutely. Set yeah. the standard for local, properly local. Yeah, I'm not talking local absolutely. farm, foraged, specifically Scandinavian, et cetera. So how did that happen? Funnily, how that happened, so I was working at the powder keg at the time. I was head chef at this restaurant. Oh, so this was before you went to China? Yeah, yeah. So this was okay. this was before I went to China. And um, this is when I was uh, running Nature's Pick um, a couple of days a week yep. with uh, Boyne, this, uh, you know, wild food foraging. And I was supplying a restaurant that was just around the corner for me. I'm sure you know, um, uh, Gastro Park, Grant King. And I yep. used to supply him a lot of different yep. stuff. One of the best chefs and, in the country. Yeah, actually. yeah, absolutely incredible. And so he basically, he opened up that whole opportunity for me because I remember going in one day and dropping off something to, to Grant. And Grant goes to me, he goes, oh, these uh, the guys from uh, Noma want to get in contact with you. And I, I thought he said Nomad or something. You know? And I was like, all right, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I sure. just, I'll get back Put him in touch. And he goes, no, 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 Nomad. And I was like, what? And and then, so anyway, so he said, oh, look, can I give them your email? You know, they're interested in some wild food and things. And I was like, yeah, of course, you know. So anyways, I had I got an email from um, uh, Bo and Thomas that was about, oh, saying, you, you know, look, we're interested. We've heard that you can get some wild food and things like this and stuff like this. And they said, we'd like you to come to a meeting and, uh, you know, show us what you can get. And they said, you know, Rene and everything would be there. And so for me, I was just like, suddenly my brain clicked Massive and I was opportunity. like, I just wanted the meeting. That's it. Yeah. That's all I wanted. I would have been so happy to meet it. But also at the same time, I just wanted to show, well, I know so many, so many different things we can get. So I spent about four days and I collected over about 300 different types of things from barks to seaweeds to different vegetables and native things, flowers, absolutely every. And I rocked up. I had like three eskies and I covered three trestle tables. And this was at, I think it was at Flying Fish or in uh, in Circular Quay or Dublin yeah. Harbour. And I covered three trestle tables, just covered it with all this stuff. And the other suppliers who were there coming to meet and, you know, show a couple of things, yeah. they rocked up with a couple of things. And everybody's just like, where did you get all this stuff? Like, How's it even put? Like, where did you find it? And Bo, who's an Australian, you know what I mean? And so, because Bo had worked with Grant before, um, he said to me, he goes, I'm Australian. I haven't even seen half this stuff before. Where, where did you get it? Where, where did you find it? And I said, oh, you know, I mean, I've got this around everywhere. And there's actually another person there who does a little bit of like kind of wild food and other things like this. And, and they'd already been asking some of the other people, well-known people about wild food. Can you get anything? Can anything be supplied and stuff? And all of them said, no, no, you can't get it. And I'd already been running Nature's Pick for about a year and a bit with my, you know, boy and with my business partner. And I was just like, absolutely, I can get you anything as, you know, as much as you need. And I said, look, it does take us time to pick sometimes. They're like, oh, look, you might have 10 to 12 people out picking with you. I was like, look, I can get you whatever you want all yeah. the time, anytime. And Rene just basically said, this is incredible. Because I had so well, for many- for Rene, that would have been manna from heaven. Because that answer you gave just a second ago, which is most suppliers and chefs are going, oh, look, it's just hard. You know, yeah. what can you get? Yeah. And then you rock up with 300 different varieties of yeah. local food or kind of indigenous, you know, forage food. Was there one thing that you remember that Rene ate that he just went, that's amazing? Like, was there a, a, yeah, I do. a stop I, moment? Uh, where I sure do. Went, I remember the, the first time. So I took um, a Monsterio Delicio. And yes, of so, course. Of course. So, what are they? This is, so this is, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure it, it looks like um, 
and all the scales fall off it. Monstero deliciosa. So it's this beautiful fruit that I've grown up eating with my grandparents and parents. It's always been in our yard everywhere. It's called fruit salad plant. And right. it has the flavor of mango and yeah. pineapple and banana and absolutely everything. This I've grown up eating with my grandparents. It was always in the fruit bowl and things like this. But for me, I also knew that you couldn't find it or get it anywhere. And at that time, already a year ago, I'd, I had it on the menu at the powder keg and I was I, I, on a couple of desserts and things and I'd made vinegar and some things with it. Mm. And I said to him, you know, like, I was like, oh, this, this is amazing. And then he tasted it and he said, this is insane. This is incredible. He's like, where he said, I've never tasted a fruit like this ever in my life. This is incredible. He's like, it's, it tastes like, you know, mango and pineapple and bananas and jackfruit. And I said, yeah, yeah, we call it fruit salad plant. And he was amazed. And then all the other things that I had there as well, he, you know, they just couldn't believe it from the seaweeds. And I had some of the other suppliers coming up to me while they're there. They're like, oh, can you get there? Oh, maybe you can come and supply us as well and stuff. And um, yeah, so, and basically Rene just said, he, he just said, look, this is when you're going to start working for us. You need to resign at your work, basically. He said, you start working this from this date, and that's it. And I was just like, my head was still, I was just like happy to be there. Yeah. So I didn't mind. But then when I realized this was all happening, I, and I just couldn't believe it. And I remember a couple of days later, I was at um, the powder keg, and um, I'd actually just been out foraging early in the morning with Boyan, and we'd found along the northern beaches, we found a whole, like maybe about 20 different trees covered in lemon aspen, and we picked like 70, 80 kilos or so. And... This, we're in the kitchen and Boyne was helping me out that day in the kitchen. We're like prepping it. I was doing, I just made like a little bit of a sorbet with some nitro with it. And I was working on putting it on the menu. And then I remember one of the waiters said to me, he goes, oh, there's some guy called Rene here to see you. <laughs> and and I was just like, what? World's and best chef. Yeah. You know, there's a guy called Rene. Yeah. Sure. And I was just like, because this is the way I had no idea who it was. But yeah. I was just like, oh, I couldn't believe. And so Rene walked in with Bo and Thomas and they walked in and they're like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, want to come in and have a chat and say, and they're like, and then Rene walked in the kitchen and he's like, oh, what's that? What's that berry? And I was like, oh, this is lemon aspen. And I was like, we found it this morning. I'm putting a special on the menu with it. And Rene was like, that's amazing. He's like, I need you to save this for me. I want you to preserve all of it. And I was like, oh, but, you know, I was actually about to put it on. And Rene was like, no, 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 I need you to preserve it. And like, uh, I think it was Bo or Thomas or one of the guys said, okay, do a brine, 2% salt, blah, 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 and just keep this cryovac and save it for us till, you I know, we it. come back out. I love it. That's a, that's a moment that you're going to remember. Yeah. Oh, it sure was. Tell us about Lume. Because you've only been the head chef there for a short period of time. Yeah. You've obviously got a long-standing connection with the owner. I look at the whole foraged market. I look at Lume and what it has been and what it's transitioning into. It is still a small market, is it? It's a hard one to crack. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, so the the great thing is, you know, have a really good relationship with the owner. And, you know, he's been very supportive of pushing me into, you know, the direction of what I believe in, which is, you know, like wild food and, and you know, nature and things like this. So... For me, coming down here, I really wanted to reconnect, uh, reconnect the whole restaurant completely back to that. So here at Lume, we're, we're cooking ecosystems and especially this upcoming menu when we're going to look at reopening mm. again in June. Dave just laughed there because he goes, you're cooking e ecosystems. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're trying to break, do, uh, break down is, so we actually take um, the chefs, we take the restaurant manager, we take everybody out, we go out a couple of times a week and what we do is we go to different areas and regions and we get understanding and appreciation of the food, the wild food, or what's growing there. Maybe it's on a farm, but around that area. And then we try to create dishes based around, you know, things that are in that area, you know? So, I mean, and, and with saying this, you know, Australia has just about all the ecosystems and microclimates on the planet, you know, in, in Australia. So, so there's not many restaurants in the world. I mean, I'm thinking Central would be one restaurant that's kind of doing that. Yeah. When I ate there, it was about elevations. Yeah. You know, yeah. from the coast up to the Andes, you know. So that's it. For, for most people, that's very hard to do. How hard is it to construct a menu out of that? 
the thing is, what I find is it's kind of the opposite. The, the hard thing is, is trying to stop with using too many ingredients. Because when you really look at it, there's so many things out there. I mean, there's an absolute multitude of things, uh, you know, around out there, you know. If you look at, you know, like um, uh, inland rivers and wetlands or if then you take it across and you go to heathlands, you go to the Alps. What I'm trying to do even more, because those are still big areas, I want to break them down even to in further, you know what I mean? So sometimes you have the forest floor or you might have, you know, the, the rocky outcrop of, you know, an alpine region. So I'm really trying to break it down into the environment and trying to, cook with what would be the area, you know? So if I was out there, what would I cook in that specific area? Because what's around it? And I really want to try and cook with that and then try and show and, and have it almost like a little bit education, but not just educate, education. I want it to be interesting for people so they can learn yeah. and have as much fun eating a course as they can as when I'm out in nature going and getting it, you know? I want We want that to, you know, to come back on the plate, but also to the, you know, to, to our guests, you know, because it's just, it's so incredible. And when you really go out there to all these places, so I really push everybody to go and travel and see more out, you know, and you really see that it's just it's such a perfect environment created by Mother Nature. And when you go out there, it just makes it so easy for you, you know. When I was out hunting a couple of days ago, you know, there's there's deer around everywhere. You know, this is right up in the, um, you know, the, the mountains up near Tulangi, you know, so really kind of cool climate, you know, eucalypt forest. There's wild bushmint everywhere. You've got mountain pepper on the side. You have ferns, you, you know, like... You have a whole kind of ecosystem there of there's so many different dishes and things that you could do, you know what I mean? So, and what we're gonna, I wanna do to start is we're gonna just be cooking the ecosystems and areas of Victoria. And then after we can master that and we've done Victoria, you know, then we'll spread out and do more. But that means specifically all the ecosystems and areas that we cook, we're going and traveling to all of those places. We're gonna learn about them ourselves. And, and, you know, we're going to bring things back and we're going to try and source things from farmers out there or we're going to get wild food. And then we're going to bring that back in the restaurant and then try and create, a, you know, a journey and experience for the guests to have in food and also in drink. The greatest thing if they, if, you know, they come in for a meal and then they come back a couple of weeks later and said, I went out there and I saw it. It's incredible. It's beautiful. You know what I mean? So, you know, and, and for me, that's, I think that's such an amazing thing about food because really when you go out and you actually look, I mean, if we just talk about a salt marsh and the ecosystem of, you know, the bay. I mean, there's so many, so many different types of edible plants and, and you know, and uh, life there, you know, from snails to, you know, worms to fish. And it ends up being too many things to use. And I always have to cut things down because I have these things and I'm like, I want to use this, 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 this. And I'm like, well, you we can't put 28 things in a dish. That's ridiculous. So, yeah. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to go, everybody that's listening to this, just do this for a minute. <sighs> <sighs> That was Elijah Holland. He's travelling a million miles an hour. Uh, can't wait to see what you do with Lume over the coming years. It's going to be fascinating. And I'm just going to give you a glimpse from my perspective. When we were looking for mushrooms and you were talking a million miles an hour, there was a moment where we knelt down in the ground and you just stopped for a minute and you go, just in this little spot here, there's five things we can eat. Not mushrooms. There was wild sorrel yep. and a few other little edibles. And we all looked down on the ground and we just went, Really? And that sums it all up. Thanks Thank for coming you. on the show. I think absolutely brilliant. We could do this for another hour, but we have to call time. We'll pull the ripcord. We'll get out of foraging. Elijah Holland, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. So tips and tricks. And where do you go when you've been speaking to Elijah, who, you know, for Renault Rizepi, no less, put 300 locally foraged ingredients in front of him, and he was amazed. That's a lot of ingredients. I've never seen any like that. But when I go foraging, and one of the reasons that I met Elijah in the first place is because 
I want to find the simple stuff that I can identify easily. If you're walking along the coast, you can find salt bush, for example. You can find a little succulents like pig face that are really easily identifiable. They're not poisonous, not dangerous. Mushrooms, on the other hand, are a little more risky. I tend to just look for three varieties. You're looking for a couple of signs. For example, pine mushrooms grow near pine trees. If you see what you think is a pine mushroom growing next to a gum tree, it's probably not a pine. So you really do need to know what you're looking for. But once you've found, say, a pine mushroom, maybe you get a friend, someone who's looked for them, found them before, uses them, cooks with them. Look for the identifiers, like really study it. Look at pictures online, maybe buy a little book on mushrooms or fungus and get to know that single mushroom. And then your chances of picking and eating the wrong thing are probably very, very minimal. I've been picking pine mushrooms for years now, and I can tell 100% exactly what they are. I have my favorite spots that I go to, and I only take just what I need. I take a little knife, clip the mushroom, leave the root in the soil, and certainly don't take them all. And I know that then when it rains again or there's a little warm weather when they're in season, they'll come back. So that's the key. When you go foraging for mushrooms, certainly don't go picking things that you don't know, you can't recognize because they can put you in hospital, seriously, or worse. And the most important thing is, even if you're out and you're foraging, you're looking for mushrooms, you don't find any, it's still fun. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.